The following is a message by Dr. R. Scott Clark of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, please visit us online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we are grateful to be together this morning. We are grateful that we do indeed have a shepherd who does not abandon us, but who does lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. And we do look forward to seeing that shepherd face to face and giving him thanks for all he has done. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So we're continuing our series this morning in uh, First uh, Thessalonians, you can go to Timothy and then take a left. Chapter 2. And I'd like to read the first uh, six or seven verses there, but also a little bit in Acts chapter 17 to give you the context. Let's, let me read first in, in Acts 17 so you can understand what Paul says in, in 1 Thessalonians 2. From Acts 17, beginning with verse 1, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and arise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous Taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have also come here. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people uh, and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And then 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul says, By the Holy Spirit, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but 
to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he write it on our hearts and give us a true understanding. As Dr. Ball reminded you last week, the, um, this epistle was uh, quite early for the Apostle Paul and quite early in the history of the New Testament, uh, somewhere uh, in the early 50s, maybe AD 51. And we know it was written from Corinth. It goes from Thessalonica uh, to Berea to Athens and then to Corinth. And from there he writes this uh, epistle. And, and we've just seen the background in Acts 17. So we know it was a mixed congregation. The Apostle Paul proclaimed the gospel in the synagogues on three Sabbaths, so for three weeks, plus working as a, a tent maker in, uh, in Thessalonica, supporting himself, not taking money from them. So he had contact with Jews and Gentiles, and then, of course, some of the God-fearers right, who were on the fringes of the synagogue, not having been circumcised, but worshiping uh, Yahweh. Uh, also, uh, some of those were converted. And then he, uh, Luke says in his um, wonderfully um, and well-educated, uh, understated way, not a few of the leading women, almost certainly thinking of the people to whom he was writing, some of whom would have identified with these uh, probably wealthy uh, women in the, um, in the church in, in Thessalonica. And so it's an interesting congregation. Uh, clearly, uh, Paul's ministry was a threat uh, certainly a threat to the synagogue and a threat to the established order of the synagogue. Uh, who is this fellow coming into our synagogue and preaching that Jesus ho Christos est in, that Jesus is the Messiah. We know that the Messiah has not come, and we know that Jesus can't be the Messiah because he was crucified. And it is impossible because, you see, everyone knows that the Messiah could not possibly be crucified. And so we know, all reasonable people know that the Messiah, if he's the Messiah, couldn't be accused as a criminal and couldn't be convicted as a criminal and couldn't be crucified on a hill with a bunch of filthy lawbreakers. Ergo, therefore, Jesus can't be the Messiah. We know this was the Jewish argument because we not only read it uh, at least implicitly in Scripture, if not explicitly, but it was the Jewish argument in the 2nd century A.D., the 3rd century A.D., the 4th century A.D., the 5th century. Middle, medieval theologians were still responding to this. Anselm wrote his book, Why the God-Man, Cur Deus Homo, in response to the Jewish criticism that it's not fitting for God the Son to have become incarnate or for God to have become incarnate and then die as a criminal on the cross. And so you see that the foolishness of the gospel has always been the foolishness of the gospel, remained the foolishness of the gospel, and continues to be foolishness and a stumbling block. But there's more going on here in, in this particular passage, and that is the Apostle Paul is trying to prove to the Thess Thessalonians, and I think to us uh, indirectly, that the ministry, and particularly his ministry, is not for nothing. I know that's not good grammar, but it gets the point across. 
His ministry is not for nothing. You see, uh, he was under attack for his motives. Why was he doing this? Why was he in Thessalonica preaching Jesus uh, crucified, buried, and raised on the third day and ascended at the right hand of the Father? And as we know from the rest of the New Testament, almost surely arguing from places like Psalm 110. Right? Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand. And the Apostle Paul likely stood up in the synagogue and he said, you know, Adonai, and then in verse 4, Adonai is Jesus, is Jesus. He is the one who has uh, uh, drunk from the brook. He is the one whose dew, the dew of his youth has been renewed. And uh, we Christians are those who are, have voluntarily, as it were, given themselves over to his service. And it's being fulfilled right in front of you. And of course, that, that was an offensive message. But why did Paul bring this message? And the crowd and his opponents, both the, the city authorities and the, the authorities in the synagogue and some of the leading citizens who were disturbed at seeing some of their uh, friends from the country club hanging out with this Paul and going to these Bible studies and these Worship services is scandalous as well in a, in a nice imperial city. We have a nice city here at Thessalonica. We're, we're well-to-do. We, print our own, we make our own money, and we have a quiet place. We're prosperous, and here comes this, this obnoxious sect. He must be in it for the money. Now, this is, this, clearly this objection comes from the outside, and it clearly comes from people who know nothing about Christian ministry. Because anyone who's ever been in Christian ministry knows that you never go into it for the money. And in case you were confused, let me tell you, don't go in for, for the money. You'll be sorely disappointed. But that was the accusation that was being made of the Apostle Paul, that somehow he was in it for his own gain. Maybe to gain a following for himself, and, but, but probably for filthy lucre. And of course, his ministry was attended by a controversy, and so people could a, a, appeal to that. Well, he is a controversial fellow. This is not a, a very good religion. There was a riot. Of course, it wasn't anything that Paul did. But nevertheless, there was a riot. We can think of the emails that uh, David has been sending to the list about Christians in, in Arad suffering, people rioting outside their house, and as it were, and, and petitioning to the Supreme Court. And you could say, well, look at what Christianity does. It brings tumult and conflict. It can't be a very good Religion And it even breeds sedition, they were saying. Jason was accused of disloyalty to the crown. And so Paul then has to leave Thessalonica and go to Berea. Surely the Apostle Paul must have questioned within himself, and every pastor questions within himself, is it really worth it? Particularly on Monday morning. If you haven't had this experience, you will. Mondays are best to be uh, highly structured in some respects, away from your work. But don't go, as I used to go, to the basement and think about Sunday. It's a bad thing. Because all the things that could have gone and should have gone and might have gone and didn't gone didn't go, they all come flooding back into your mind and you begin to wonder, is it really worth it? Am I doing this? Why am I doing this? And the response is, the ministry is not about Paul, and that becomes clear in this passage, but it, it does certainly involve him. It, it's not about him, but it's not without him. And so if you just look at the circumstances as the Apostle Paul reflects on them, you see in verse 2 he says, Already I have suffered, or having suffered, 
at Philippi or Philippi, I came to you. And, and we were bold, he says, we, uh, Paul and Silas, were bold with or in the midst of much struggle. So the ministry, the circumstances of the ministry are not easy. They certainly were not easy in Thessalonica, and they, were, and they will not be easy for you. These are the circumstances in which he spoke the Evangelion, the, the good news. And we'll turn to that in a minute. But that's at the heart of what the Apostle Paul was about. When you ask yourself, is the ministry for nothing, you, you remember the circumstances of the Apostle Paul and you remember what it was he was about in the midst of these very difficult circumstances and then ultimately why it is you are involved in ministry. It's the Evangelion. It's the announcement of the accomplishment of redemption. That alone, no matter what happens to you, that makes it worth it. Because it's not about you, but in the providence of God, it certainly involves you. You are in the middle of it. You will experience a lot of these kinds of things. People will question you. They'll say, well, you know, he's trying to do this, or he's trying to do that. Or I wouldn't have done it this way. Or I wouldn't have said it that way. Or, you know what I heard about him? That's a great one in Christian circles. Don't get caught going into a dirty bookstore, but you can slander and gossip and whisper about a minister till you're blue in the face, and that's okay. Because, after all, it's in the, in the love of God, really. We're just seeking the best for the church and his people. And The Apostle Paul faced that every day of his life. Jews whispering about, you know, he used to be a rabbi, but he figured out he could make more money being a Christian. So he's setting up his own religion, his own sect, you know, and he tells people not to obey the law, and he has his own rules. And you know, he's taking up collections. Second thing we ought to see here is that the Apostle Paul is very concerned about his own motives, that they should understand his motives. It, again, it's not about motive. We're not Donatists. It's not the quality of the minister that makes the gospel efficacious or the sacraments efficacious. But motives are not irrelevant. For the Apostle Paul, it is the cause. And here we are at Westminster, and no place is more identified with the cause in America, perhaps, of the Protestant Reformation, the Westminster Seminary, California. I'm very much a sort of cause-oriented fellow. I love causes. We've been, uh, people have written about Machen as a, as a partisan of the, of the lost cause of the South. And, and all of that may, may be true. But the Apostle Paul's cause was the gospel. His message to the Thessalonians was not his character, even though he does want to defend himself. It's not his qualities, but his message to them was Christ. Christ was crucified. Christ was buried. Christ was obedient. Christ was raised. Christ is ascended. Christ is ruling. Christ is interceding. Christ is saving. Christ sent his Holy Spirit. Christ sent me. I saw Christ on the road to Damascus. That was the thing that was constantly out of his mouth. And we know now why he had to defend himself, because he was constantly talking about Jesus. He didn't talk about himself. He forgot to explain himself to these people, so he had to write back to them and say, look, I forgot to say some of these things. I'm not in it for the money. He was so about Christ that they were a little bit susceptible to people coming in and saying, you know, because that crowd didn't go away, you see. As soon as the Apostle Paul left, there was a vacuum, and here comes the crowd 
Maybe not in a riot, but maybe a little more quietly. And so five times the apostle mentions the Evangelion in 1 Thessalonians. He, um, it came with power in 1.5. He spoke it in verse 2 of our chapter, 2.2 two, and 2.4. He was entrusted with it. Right? It's something to be guarded and protected. It's something important. Right? He gave it in 2.8. Uh, there's even an intensifying uh, prefix there. He, he really gave it. Right? Uh, and then in, in 9, he preached it. He proclaimed it. This is how he characterized his ministry. And then finally, um, and he did it, uh, as he says in verse 4, not to please men. And, and of course, uh, if you're preaching Christ, you won't be pleasing men. Brothers, if, if people don't like your ministry, that might be a good sign. If people really like you and you're popular and well-liked personally, that's a good thing. And I, I don't mean you should be obnoxious. Please never let your person be in the way. No one's more conscious of that than I am. But the message is not congenial to human nature. And the message is offensive. And, if, and so you, you want to keep all of these passages together. But if people get after you because you preach Christ, that's a good thing. Because they got after the Apostle Paul. And please let us not forget, they crucified Jesus. It's not as if at the end of his life he was a really well-liked fellow either. We do preach a crucified and risen Savior. Finally, it's not about conduct, but conduct does matter. And at the end of the passage, he reflects on his conduct. We were bold, he says. Where did this boldness come from? Well, we have to be quick here. But it comes, first of all, from the Holy Spirit. When you are ordained to ministerial office, uh, God gives you grace. And you will do and say things you never imagined. You will stand behind the pulpit someday, probably in the providence of God, and announce the ultimate sanction of discipline. You can't imagine saying that somebody has been excluded from the kingdom of God, but you may have to say it. And when you do, God will give you grace. You will stand behind the pulpit and announce that some people are going to heaven and some people are going to hell, which is really a remarkable thing to say in public. Maybe not about particular people, but classes of people. God gives you grace. It's your office. That's exactly what happened with the Apostle Paul. He came not with flattery, verse 5, but he came with honesty. And he is so sure that he told the truth and he did what he thought was right according to the word of God, led by the Spirit, that he invokes God as a covenant witness. God as my witness. Now we take that language on our lips rather loosely in this age, but the Apostle Paul did not. He was invoking covenant sanctions. May it be to me the curses of the covenant if it's not true what I just said. And for Paul, knowing, given who Paul is and knowing what he knows, for him to say that is the most solemn oath. And then he says, I didn't do it in verse 6 for my glory. I did it for Christ's glory. You see, on Monday morning, that's what gets you up. Because Christ is risen. Christ lives. Christ reigns. And Christ is using me to accomplish his purposes. Despite what people say. I could, he says, I could have issued demands, but I didn't. Just as Jesus suspended his rights. 
So the Apostle Paul suspended his rights. And he was stoned and beaten and imprisoned and mocked and humiliated because of the gospel. That's what kept him going. That's what got him up. That's what... I mean, imagine climbing out from a pile of rocks. Why would you keep doing this? You must ask yourself. You may not face literal rocks, but you will face verbal rocks, political rocks, ecclesiastical rocks, cultural rocks. At the end of the day, if it isn't Christ, if it isn't the gospel, you may not get up. But if it is Christ, and if it is the gospel, you have strength to get up. Father, we are grateful for the gospel and for all that Jesus has done and for the witness of the Apostle Paul and his character and for uh, what he shows us about the humanity of ministry, but the grace that you give your servants. We pray you give us that grace to be like, in that respect, the Apostle Paul as he was like Christ. Hear our prayer and fulfill it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Copyright 2011, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.